Welcome to the Tech Sales Show, where we are dedicated to making you a better tech seller, sharing tried and true sales strategies and answering your questions weekly. Hey, hey, Bobby. What's up, Brian? Well, we're kicking off a new series. This is series number 17. This will be a two-parter, Bobby. We've got, um, it's kind of, it's almost like a partial book review on a book called The 48 Laws of Power. It's written by Robert Greene. He's written a half dozen books. He's he's a really interesting guy. I, I really enjoy reading some of his stuff. Um, the 48 Laws of Power is kind of like, a, it's a modern day version of Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And if you've read The Art of War, it's a, if you haven't read it, it's worth picking up on Amazon. It's It's probably... I don't know, 50 or 100 pages. It's a really quick read. It's really interesting. There's there's kind of two versions of the book, um, and sometimes you can buy the book all in one. One is just the, the straight art of war laws, and then the second part of the book is the art of war laws plus some commentary around it. It's a good quick read. I When I read 48 Laws of Power, it felt like that was almost a, a modern-day version of that book. Uh, and then sure enough, he does... Um, when I was reading kind of the, the background on the history of the book, he does talk about being inspired like Machiavelli and Sun Tzu and Queen Elizabeth, um, Kissinger, you know, kind of um, basically um, expressing a combative approach to business in a lot of ways. So I'll put a big asterisk by this, Bobby, and say that I don't agree with all of it. And I found a lot of the book to be a little callous, to be to be frank. But regardless, it was like a, it was almost a, like a really good psychology book. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does, and not. I don't agree with everything in every book I've ever read. Sure, it's the nuggets. Uh, it's the nuggets that stick. The good stuff sticks. It's what I always say. Uh, so if if there was more than one, it's worth having a conversation. Yeah, there there are, and in fact, this this podcast will be a two part series. I'm, I'm going to highlight uh, ten of the laws. Um, in kind of an order that I thought was most interesting. Um, a couple other things that I'll say about it. It was published in 1998. Um, if, so it's a dense book. So whether you listen to it on Audible, it's one of those books that you'd probably listen to at like 1.25. I know we have those books. You know, it's a little thick. It's a little dense, but there's some really good points there. Um, I was introduced to uh, Robert Greene by Ryan Holiday, who I think everyone knows that I, I'm a big fan of his work. Um, and Robert Greene has a new book. It's kind of, um, it's almost a further dive into psychology. It's called the, the laws of human nature. And it talks about like unconscious, uh, drives, motivations, cognitive biases. So I, I'm in the process of reading that book right now. And, um, I would like to follow up with a podcast in the future about uh, that book. Cause I've found that to be really interesting as well. He also just had a stroke. So this guy's like just hit the news uh, a couple months ago, whenever he released laws of human nature, like at the most inopportune time, as if there isn't an opportune time to have a stroke. Um, he had a stroke at the release of this book, um, which, which uh, I think caught a lot of people off guard. Uh, so Bobby, with that, why don't we, uh, why don't we jump into it? Let's do it. I think you're going to kick us off with law number 22. I am. Uh, this is called the surrender tactic, uh, basically transferring weakness into power. Um, this one, like, I, I think this one is the most interesting to me because, Bobby, I don't know about you, but 
when when someone like we we we've picked a career in tech sales that that can be contentious and there there's a lot on the line and when and things go wrong sometimes in technology right things are obviously this is a this is a contentious business contentious industry which leads to a lot of challenging conversations and i i think my default was when i'm being attacked or when someone's coming fast at me the default for me was to come very aggressive back at him like to almost match that intensity um and what this what this law suggests is that if you surrender instead and and what the way i kind of read this i make a slight adjustment to this you have an opportunity to the way the, the law reads you have an opportunity to coil around your enemy and strike with your fangs from close up the way i would kind of amend that and the one the way this is i found this to be most valuable to me professionally is that whenever there is a really contentious or challenging conversation instead of leading in a defense in a in an offensive posture or being too defensive what i try to do is really meet that aggression with um with not fighting back basically, but basically turning my other cheek. Right. And what I find is that totally disarms the conversation. Did, I don't know. Did you have an experience with this professionally? Well, when I, when I read this one, I, I kind of think of the close the book email, right? It, it's, it's partially of that when you totally. surrender on a deal that you, you kind of have, you know, you've been a little aggressive, maybe they were aggressive and they, and they kind of surrender, but then you don't get in that. You just put your hands up and say, Hey, I'm moving on. Best of luck. Maybe I'm reading you wrong. It, it always makes the customer react. And I, and I think you do have the opportunity to strike, maybe not with fangs, but you have the ability to get reengaged. And that's what I think of when I think of this one. Yeah. So, the, the best way to apply this is, let's say, that inevitable situation to where you get, you know, a challenging customer. I think one of the examples that really stands out to me um, at, at Workday is that one of our very first customers 15 years ago, the project was kind of going sideways. And uh, our founder, uh, who was who, who back 15 years ago, was very active in the company. And the customer... Um, the way he tells the story is the customer had some culpability, Workday had some culpability, but the customer was really putting it on Workday's plate. Like, this is on you, Workday. You have messed up here. And the way that um, that Dave, our founder, uh, replied to that situation when he was sitting face-to-face in front of the customer is he stopped and said, you know what? We, we let you down, and I hate that we let you down. Let's let, We need to focus on how we're going to make this right. And, and it totally took the aggression out of the conversation and turned it into a very uh, relaxed conversation to where it was outcome focused and it took the sting out of the conversation. I think far too often we try to we try to defend our position. We try to put our stake in the grounds. And I don't think that the other side of the table ever really feels heard if that's our default position. We talk about our time at SparkHound quite a bit, and, and I did learn a lot of good stuff from Sean Usher and team. One thing that he blew my mind when we first opened the Houston office, we had an upset customer similarly to that, and the customer didn't want to pay and definitely didn't want to pay full full fare for whatever the project was. And Sean just handed him the contract and said, you know what, scratch out what we agreed to originally, write the number that you think it was really worth, and that's all we expect you to pay. And give us another shot because I want you to know how we do business. 
And the, the, the shocking part of that was that I did that multiple times in my time there selling services. And the number they wrote was always more than I thought I could get them to pay. You know, the, the, the few times that they agreed and they wrote a number down, it was more than I was going to ask them to do. So uh, it is definitely truth to this tactic, no doubt. Yep. Okay, so law number 46 is the second one we'll discuss, and that's never appear too perfect. Um, envy creates silent enemies. I think that's such a true statement. Um, and I think we all know those people. I think that's one of the curses of Facebook. Um, this Facebook world of everyone posts the most perfect scenarios. They don't post the the day where they had a bad hair day. Not that I would know what a bad hair day is because I kind of have... Or the, or the argument with their spouse. I mean, there's so many bad things going on in the world. It's just so funny that people really portray that's life. Yeah. Like, yeah, so, so the laws never appear too perfect. It's in, in what he shares in this, in this section is that it's smart to occasionally display defects, to admit to harmless vices. And th- the aim of this is effectively to deflect envy and appear more human, more approachable. And I think we all, well, I don't know. I, I think it, it's, it's definitely a weakness of mine is that I don't want to portray that kind of weakness. You know what I mean? And, and what that leads to indirectly is is appearing perfect, while where I'm certainly not. So what I tend to do is um, I tend to be more private, and that is natural as part of my uh, introvertedness. But by being more introverted and more private, and the things I do externalize have shape around them. And you know I, I think that's that's that this one was a big lesson for me is to to just be a little bit more open, and, and whenever I have now, whenever I have one-on-ones with my leadership or whenever I'm talking to my team, I do get very specific about where my weaknesses and struggles are. And we talked about this, um, let, let's see, yeah, I guess it was like middle of last year when we talked about territory plans. And we talked about, you know, if you if you build a territory plan out and you're reviewing it with your team a quarter later or a half year later, and you say, look, I, it was the intention to have this marketing event. We put a lot of you know, uh, emphasis around this is what we were going to accomplish, but we missed here. I think what people want to know, certainly from a leadership standpoint, is that you know what's working and you know what's not working. And I think by being really upfront about those things, you you do become a human to them, and it becomes more of a a pragmatic conversation about you know what what's next, what next step do we take here? No doubt. And and on a basic form, what I think about from a tech sales perspective is not to, to act like your product's perfect either, right? We, we all have things that maybe are really, really great about our products, services, or solutions, but the competition normally has some pretty good stuff too. And to act like theirs is just total trash and yours is the only thing that anybody should buy, that is definitely a bias that you have in carrying. And, and you can't, I think if we do it with the things that we're selling, all the negative that comes with this is, is going to come with that action and behavior of acting like it's perfect man i love that i didn't even consider that it it is so true if um what we talk about a lot of times is um when you were debriefing with a customer particularly if we have a sponsor on a deal is is really trying to understand what we're trying to get to ultimately from that conversation on a debrief is where what are our you know what are the chinks in our armor? Like, what, what do we need to solve, right? And so what you can do to open that conversation up 
is to admit some areas that you're not perfect in. To your point, almost in a way, Bobby, it's like, here's what I think we didn't do a good job of. We didn't talk about our support model enough, or we didn't line you up with a great reference that, you know, is doing what you're doing, it, which it kind of disarms them, right? Like now they, now they're comfortable expressing to you where you're not perfect, which is only going to help improve you. Well, a few weeks ago we did the episode on why customers or just the customers don't want to buy your products. They don't want to buy your products. They want to solve their problems. So if your product does have a gap that, that they're specifically requesting, but you cover 90% of it, I'm going to bet that the 10% you don't have somebody else is covering, but they might only be the 60 or 70%. But if they appear too perfect and you tell them, here's where this is on our roadmap. We understand this is important, but we're not there yet. How much will this cost you? What? How do we solve it? That's what customers want to hear. They want to know you're thinking about the whole solution, not just part of their solution. Yeah. Uh, the next one we'll talk about is um, assume formlessness. Um, this one was a hard one for me to really grasp, especially early on in my career. And um, I've talked about before that uh, my father-in-law was um, with Lockheed Martin as a senior executive there. And I would always... I would always tell him things in very certain terms about my career. Like I, I would say like, this is the next role for me. And he would kind of, you know, he'd always, he'd kind of laugh a little. He was always very nice about it. He wasn't disrespectful about it, but he would always kind of laugh and say, yeah, don't, don't be so uh, confident that that's going to be the exact next step for you. Right. And I, in some ways, like it upset me. Like I, I know what I'm going to do next. Like this is what I'm going to do next, you know? But I, he had so much experience that I didn't fully appreciate and understand. I think this is probably the biggest piece of feedback I give to mentors that I or mentees that I speak with on a regular basis is that by having a really visible plan, you open yourself up for uh, changes that you may not be in control of. So instead of like taking a form that is um, that is very defined, instead keep yourself very adaptable and on the move. And instead of talking about your next career, or, or sorry, not your next career, but your next job or your next role in very certain terms, instead talk about the things you enjoy doing and the things that you're good at and the things that you're passionate about and keep it independent of any specific role. And if it, if it so happens that that role that you desire is the next natural outcome of that, perfect. But if you instead focus on what you're, what it is you're good at, the things you're passionate about, the things you enjoy doing, if you can instead focus on those types of things, uh, you leave yourself uh, less exposed, I think, in the long run. Yeah, I had a great, this is a great one, because I had a mentoring conversation just late last week with someone who thought they had their next role in sight. That kind of slipped through their hands. The, the company they're working for is making a pretty significant change on how that next role would evolve for her. And it's kind of like gone. Like, and now she doesn't know really what to do, um, where to go next. She wants to stay there. You know, these all these things she's struggling with. But it truly is that she had this roadmap that was very linear and that kind of went up these stairs. And now there's not another stair, and it's over. So you might have to go back before you go forward again. So I I, I walked her through kind of what happened to me, and I, I think I learned some of this from my mentors over the years, but. I'll take no credit for this being my plan of attack, but you know, I used to always talk about I wanted to I wanted to impact a number. I wanted to grow a business. I wanted to make back in the day at Microsoft I wanted to make a 
small impact in a big company. In the Sparkhound days, I wanted to make a big impact in a small company. And ultimately, I wanted to have people that I worked with. I wanted to sell something, and I wanted to, I wanted to have fun. And lo and behold, today, I go to a flight school that I happen to own, that I manage a bunch of people. I have a big number. I'm trying to grow that number. Um, and I, I am the leader of that organization, and it's fun. It is nothing like what I thought I would be doing five years ago. Um, and it's only maybe part of my day job or the things that I really do all day, every day, but it truly is like, what are those things? What are those attributes that you want to be doing every day? Cause if you'll do it, I don't really think about paychecks and what I'm doing and all that stuff anymore. I just go do what I love going to do. And it's a challenge that I love. And when we had that conversation, she started thinking about a lot of different things she could do that could be very fulfilling that had nothing to do with what she's doing today. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, law number nine is win through your actions, never through arguments. Um, this is I really like this one a lot. I, I think the, the basic point of this is that in proving a point, it's always better to convince your audience, especially if that person is like in a higher position than you. Like let's say they're a you know, a CIO or a VP of finance or a CFO or something, but it's better to convince your audience by demonstrating your idea rather than using words or trying to argue with them. I think we all know indirectly that's a, that's a poor way to express your point. And I think there's two dimensions of this that, that are, are best to express this. Uh, the first is when you talk about, when you suggest that your wares, whatever your wares are, your software, your hardware, your services that you're selling. And, and what we often try to do is convince them like, this is going to solve this for you. Like you've recognized the pain that they're going through perhaps. And Mr. Customer, we can, we're going to fix this for you. Instead of um, expressing that point in terms of what it's already done for customers. So that's demonstrating the outcomes rather than using words to try to convince them of those outcomes. You can't argue, the prospect can't argue with outcomes that have already been achieved with similar customers. They can say, well, that customer is not like us or that customer, they're in a different scenario than us, right? But you can't, you can't they can't say they didn't achieve those results because that's fact-based. I like that one a lot and probably one I struggled with early on. And, and when I see... I don't want to use a junior new rep kind of title there, but when I see people that are average, they, they will, they will repeat things that they don't know if they're true or not. Really. They'll just pull them out of a hat. They'll, they know someone else said it. They, they probably can't even reference the context of where the information comes from and they speak it as if it's gold. Um, and then they get caught a lot and then they lose credibility. They, they lose a lot of opportunity to sell. I do like the customer, the customer call or the customer reference. Um, I do think, I do think you you have to really prepare for these conversations. And if you go back to one of the earlier laws where we can't be perfect, you you got to start learning what's going to come up that is is a shortcoming for you, and be prepared with those customer stories, those customer references, fact based stuff that, as this law says, will prove the point. Not through argument or conversation, but by by the actions that they achieved previously for someone else. Yeah, you yeah always refer back to existing outcomes. Have those outcomes uh, memorized, um, and that, that that's going to be your best opportunity from a customer standpoint. So, Bobby, let's talk about this from another dimension. 
Um, let's look at it from a couple different angles here, actually. So let's say that you're an inbound uh, sales rep and you have changed companies. You sold inbound for one company, now you're doing it for another company. Or you're an outbound sales rep, uh, switched companies. Um, many times we'll, we'll hear an outbound rep or an inbound rep say, man, I, I looked at what we're doing here and we're just not doing this right. And we need to change this, that, and the other. The, the problem, of course, with that is that they don't have the full context around why it's done that way in the first place. That doesn't mean it's right, but arguing to change a process before you've actually achieved success is a recipe to be discredited very early on in the company. So the point of this is, if you've just joined another company, or if you've just changed roles within another company, you've been promoted or whatever, before you come around swinging a sledgehammer, uh, be successful and make sure that you can point to success that you've achieved in a very similar type of role. Otherwise, you're going to discredit yourself very early on. No doubt, for sure. What about the next one? So law number 45 is preach the need to change, but never reform too much at once. So let's say that you have achieved success in the current role, and let's say you've been promoted up within the company, right? And because of this promotion, um, you're taking a step back. You're having a look at the organization. Let's say it's you're an account executive and you take over a new territory. The key here is that change is going to be necessary oftentimes, especially in an industry that we're in, where in technology, it feels like the world is shifting every six months. Certainly every year it's shifting. Instead of trying to make a wholesale change, especially if you're a leader of an organization, that change is going to be painful and not very well adapted. So instead of trying to focus on 15 changes that you think are going to help improve the company, focus on just one thing. We talk about this a lot too. Let's say that you've established a new partnership with a new company. Oftentimes, Bobby, you'll sit down with that company and the first thing they want to do is what? They want to get the Excel spreadsheet of all the prospects that you have in your territory. And everyone makes big promises. I'm going to introduce you into 30 accounts and yep. you have these 42 action items. I've got these 62 action items. Let's, let's go back to the desk and let's get to work. And Bobby, in your experience, what happens? Absolutely nothing. Nothing gets done, right? So think about every one of these interactions that you have, it, whether it's your teammates, uh, the company you're at, your partnerships. There could be fantastic opportunities to change. Instead of trying to boil the ocean on that change, just make one small commitment to improve. We used to, used to tell me this all the time. We'd, we'd go sit down with a new systems integrator or a new reseller and it wasn't, let's look at your list and let's come up with 42 accounts that we could potentially work together on. It's let's start with one meeting. How important yeah. would it be just to have one meeting? And that's the point of this. Well, and that does build the foundation, right? And I think, oh my gosh, I've seen so many new managers want to make big sweeping changes. And you'd think, I've been in roles where there's been multiple managers kind of around me that changed hands every year. You got reps, you got partners, you got this this big ecosystem of people that are feeling this change over and over and over. Um, I would say it's probably one of Microsoft's biggest negatives in the grand scheme of things is that they've got to rip and replace. And, and I get there is a lot of pressure to change and grow and be grow bigger, but it's just too much. Um, 
and I, I probably was this way because I, you, I wanted to make my mark and I wanted, I wanted to show. But I, I think later in my career, I, I started learning small bites on the elephant made a big, big difference, right? That there's just one process, one little thing. We got that right. And then I moved towards others. And now I might have had a long list in one note somewhere of everything I wanted to improve upon. But I was pretty good at saying this is our, this is our motto for this quarter. This is what we're going to do. And this is what we're going to focus on, and we're going to do that one one little thing at a time. It was probably not that way 15 years ago when I got my first manager's job. Yeah, it is the default, right? It's like uh, here we go, let's let's make it happen. Uh, but yeah, if you can start with small small bites uh, in the elephants, uh, it'll lead to a lot uh, more sustainable success. So. To recap here, uh, Law 22 is use a surrender tactic, transform weakness into power, which is basically instead of getting uh, goaded into an aggressive response to an aggressive response, use the surrender tactic. Uh, Law number 46 is never appear too perfect. Show some weaknesses. it'll, it'll, It'll make you appear more human and approachable. Law number 48 is assume formlessness. Don't try to be so bound into what that exact precise next step is it it's um it's immature um so so be more focused on what what are the things that you're passionate about what are the things that you really enjoy doing and ideally yeah i think we would all agree that if our next role uh you know we could be doing more of the things we like doing less of the things we don't like doing that would be considered a success so assume formlessness and then finally uh, actually, I'm sorry, two more. Law number nine is win through your actions, not through arguments. We're trying to use your words. But finally, Bobby, the last one, 45, is preach the need to change, but never reform too much at once. Loved it. It was a great episode. Next week, we will take on the next five that we put into this series. Uh, again, the book is The 48 Laws of Power. We'll have the information in the show notes. People, this is what makes you not average. Average sucks. Average is the enemy. Thanks for listening to the TechSell Show. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the TechSell Show. Subscribe to our email list at www.techsaleshow.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at TechSell Show. Until next week, average is the enemy.